Welcome back to another episode of the Traveling Entertainer Podcast, and this is part two of our interview with international opera singer Robert Pomakov. So yeah, it happened. This 40-something-year-old guy attended his first opera at the Paris Opera House to see Madame Butterfly, and man, was that some interesting stuff. And yeah, I actually received a lot of positive feedback on the previous interview. People seemed to really like to hear what Robert had to say. So this is just a short little bonus follow-up interview to discuss a few things with our old friend and international opera singer, Robert Pomakov. Welcome to the second part of the Traveling Entertainers interview with Robert Pomakov. Thank you very much for joining us. How are you? Very good, sir. I like to call this second part, The Idiot Has Gone to the Opera. You're no longer an opera virgin. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I am no longer an opera virgin. And, um, well, let me let me tell everyone, uh, Bob was kind enough to get me a ticket to go see Madame Butterfly at the Paris Bastille Opera. Uh, and for a first-time-goer opera, wow, it was, it was interesting. I think one of the, the first things that I'd, I'd like to point out is Bob was right. Uh, it's very easy to follow along in English and French. In this particular theater, it's mostly, they've got four different areas where you can read what's going on lyric-wise, but if you're an Anglophone, it's only center stage and above. Whereas if you're sitting in the back, um, you know, whether it's 20 rows back, 30 rows back, there is quite a bit of information about what every other line is. Uh, but that was really nice for someone like me because I had no idea what was going on. <laughs> and you mentioned that had been around for 30 years? That's been Yeah, around? about 30 or 40 years. Uh, companies first started doing it. I'm pretty sure it was, yeah, it started in North America. Um, but now you see it. I don't know an opera house that doesn't do it. And most opera houses do it in multiple languages. Like the at the Met in New York, the, the titles are actually on the seat in front of you. So you, you, everyone has their own individual screen. And you have, I think you have four language settings there. Most theaters, though, either projected above the, above the stage or on the sides or a combination. Okay. Um, I didn't buy the book that went along with it that you can usually buy. Does that have all of the lyrics in it as well in, in different languages? It depends on the house. I don't know what Paris does. Uh, some places will publish usually just the uh, original text and maybe a translation into whatever country you're in. Um, other programs are literally just information about the performers or biographies and don't have, and like uh, maybe director's notes what he, what the director's thinking of for the production um, maybe historical notes on the piece so it depends that's house by house type thing well one of the things that I did notice and uh, I think maybe you and I talked about afterwards I don't think it was in the first podcast was that the opera has multiple operas going at several time or at the same time uh, and what I thought about from learning that was how they manage the stage presentation. You know, for instance, there's quite a cast that's on stage at one particular time, and it comes quite quickly. Within the first 15 minutes, everybody involved is on stage. Maybe 20, 25. Maybe I'm wrong. Does that sound about right? That's though? about, no, they could, yeah, 15 minutes. 15 minutes. Chorus comes everybody in. is on stage. And what I thought about is the scene changes are very, is this, is this normal that the background is very minimalistic? Uh, that's particular to this production. Um, the way that most opera companies run is you have um, the sets are on what's called a wagon. So it's it's basically an elevated box, maybe a couple feet tall, that the 
the set actually sits in sits on top of. So the set's assembled backstage, put on these wagons, and then they can move the wagons in and out. So that's how they can completely change a uh, set during an intermission, or how they can bring in. Uh, you know, in, in New York, for instance, they'll have a one opera on a Saturday afternoon and then a different opera that same night. Um, I didn't so know that. Okay. The Met, the, I think the Met has seven or eight stages, so that they're able to store seven or eight complete sets backstage with one on, on the stage. And it's just basically they run on tracks, kind of like a train. They pull in, they pull out. Uh, the system here, they don't have tracks, actually. It's very interesting. They, they have like little... Um, I wouldn't call it a forklift because it doesn't lift, but like a, a vehicle of that size that literally just rubs its bumper against the set and just kind of pushes it downstage. Right. This this is the biggest opera stage in the world. They have, I think, 12 or 13 stages. Like it, okay. when you go backstage at this opera, it is enormous. I mean, really? we're talking miles of backstage. Wow. Is that is this is this the way that every single opera house runs multiple performances going at the same time? No. So you can have what's called, called a repertory house. Or, uh, but uh, companies will either have one show that they just run, wait till it's done, and then bring in a, a second show. And then some t- some opera houses will have multiple shows running at a time. Uh, basically, I think a lot of that has to do with the size of uh, the theater. And by size, I mean actual physical space size. Sure. If they ha- if you have the ability to store the sets, you'll do mul- multiple shows at once. Whereas if you're a smaller or especially older theaters, you won't be able to do that. So you only do one one show, you let it run its course, and then you bring in another show. Right. Um, one of the things that I was really impressed with, with that I wasn't expecting was how physical the performances was. And in a weird way, uh, it's not your typical it's not your typical physicality that you'd see. Because when you go to a, a standard musical, it is high energy. People are running around. They're singing. There's dancing. There's acrobats. And this is quite the opposite, where all the characters' movements are highly coordinated. I would say that there is... 90% of the time, characters really aren't moving. They're staying placed in one, one, in one position and waiting for their cue to either sing uh, or they've got a direct movement. I mean, it, it's very well orchestrated. Yeah. And I don't know if this is just this performance, but I mean, there are several times where actors are on stage for three or four minutes and they're in an awkward position and they're staying like that. They're, yeah. they're essentially doing the robot, right? Yeah, I mean, that's very specific to this production and this interpretation of Madame Butterfly. So... You know, I've done numerous uh, different productions of Madame Butterfly, and they're, they've all been very different. Um, this one was choreographed by a Japanese choreographer, so that's why it has this very kind of minimalistic, um, stark, and very angular gestures. Again, that's specific to this interpretation of Madame Butterfly. Right. If you go see it somewhere else, it'll, it could be completely different. So uh, in the other productions that you've been in, what was, what was that like? Uh, I'd be more... I mean, because we're talking about, it's a cross-cultural story, so for your listeners who don't know, it's basically about a Japanese geisha who falls in love and is impregnated by an American American man. Um, and, of course, it's not a good ending at the end. But you, So it's, it's a cross between, you have Italian music with Italian lyrics, talking about a Jap, in a Japanese setting, but also with American characters in there. So you're always going to have some type of stylized performance when you're doing Madame Butterfly just to show the stark differences of those three nations. 
but most produ- productions it would be more what would what you I think you would classify as just more classical theater. Like if you were to go see a Shakespeare play and how those people move their bodies and how they respond to each other. What I noticed about the set design as well as the the difference in the nationalities is it seems as though they really drew a line between the colors black and white and the canvas in the back. Uh, was really, an, I guess, a reflection of emotion, depending upon the color that was there, because yeah. this is a very stripped-down performance. Totally. Uh, and I, it, it worked very well. Yeah. I enjoyed it. It was very interesting for a guy like me sure. <laughs> to be 46 years old yeah. and go to the opera for the first time in his life. But it, I'm curious to see what other performances are like. That's kind of what I've got out of this, is this seemed to be um, a unique starting point for... The idiot going to the opera. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I recommend going to a piece like this as one's first opera, simply because from a musical standpoint, you'll recognize certain tunes and it flows very easily. And it's what, you know, one would call classic, classical Italian opera. A very interesting thing to do would be going to a website of like Opera Paris or the Metropolitan Opera of New York, because they have very good um, video trailers of the operas they do. And you can literally sit there for an hour and just watch, you know, 15, five minute trailers of different pieces. And you can see how wildly different interpretations and productions are. And the cool thing you're talking about what's happening behind us. A lot of times when you're on stage performing, you don't have a concept of what it looks like to the audience because we're, you know, we're facing you and you're facing us. So I don't know what's happening behind me half the time. I don't know how the space is working. And that's where the whole team, the whole production team comes in, where the directors come in, where the choreographers come in, is to be our eyes because we can't... We, it's impossible to understand what you're doing in front of 3,000 people on a stage of that size. What is the... Out of all the operas that you've been in, what has been the most elaborate stage performance that you've been involved with? So I did a new production of Rigoletto by Verdi at the Met. It opened in 2013, I think, and they set it in 50s Vegas. And from my understood, the the first scene's like a big party. And so they set it on the casino floor. Like, definitely go to the Met w- website and you can check this stuff out. I believe they spent over a million dollars just on the neon lights. Yeah, I'm guessing it's a pretty big cast, too. Huge cast, big, bigger than what you saw in Butterfly. And, I mean, they had to get all vintage, like, slot machines because it has to look like the 50s, right? So they, you can spend an enormous miss money amount of money on a production yeah and they can also make money off the people by playing slots when they're not working exactly right? yeah, totally. yeah, yeah. Yeah. i'm sure that's what their idea yeah, yes. was let's get all the actors to pay for this production i digress wanted to talk a little bit about the productions in the future that you have from here if i'm right you're back home in toronto then you're going to oslo what what are you doing in oslo again uh oslo is a russian opera by tchaikovsky called eugene onyegin and what's your part in that i am playing the husband of the lead of heroine, I guess. And yeah. I, I just come in at the end. It's a much older character. I come in. So basically, uh, Onyegin's been in love with, or sorry, Tatiana has been in love with the Onyegin, but he always resists her. He's a very cold character and pushes her away. So that's for the first two acts of the opera. The third act takes place uh, in the future, five or seven years further down the road. And he sees her for the first time in that, length of time in between and immediately feels love for her and then my character shows up because she's now moved on from him and she's married to me and the opera basically ends with him professing her love his love for her for the first time and her she just kind of saying like sorry (laughs) (laughs) well uh and then after oslo you are off to 
I go to New York, three productions there of Turandot, also by Puccini, also set in Asia, um, Madame Butterfly, and... So you'll be doing Madame Butterfly, Butterfly twice in a year. Yeah. And who will you be playing in New York? Same character. Oh, the same character. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And uh, from the, where do I go after there? Oh, go to Hong Kong, if it's still stable, to do a very rarely performed opera called Hamlet, based on Hamlet, but okay. it's hardly ever done. So why do you say, is there some worry that, that Hong Kong, you won't be able to go? Well, I just, with the current political situation, who knows, right? Like things have turned pretty bad the last two days, so there's a lot of violence Oh, I haven't really now. been paying attention. What happened? Yeah. Uh, there was, uh, the police shot some protesters the last oh, two days. Right. Yeah. yeah. And the protests have really been ratcheting up, so. How, how far away is this, though, when you're That'll in That'll be Hong in May. Day? Ah, hopefully the temperature will have calmed down yeah. a little bit. You know, I mean that's my hope because I love Hong Kong. But so you've been to Hong Kong. I've been to Hong Kong just for pleasure, but yeah, and that was about oh god, twelve, fourteen years ago. Yeah, that'd be nice to get back. How long is that performance for? Uh, it's about a month. Well, let's let's go a little bit off subject here because one of the things that you and I discussed afterwards was, I guess, for you to be as well versed in opera and as passionate about it. Clearly, it's a different style of music. But what type of music do you listen to when you're not listening to opera? Um. I would say mostly classic rock. I'm also kind of getting back in. So I'm in my late 30s, so I really grew up in the early 90s, right? So kind of the the grunge era, um, and I kind of find myself going back back into that now, listening to you know a lot of Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Soundgarden stuff like that. So, and plus you're just because you know my generation's getting older now. You uh, when you turn on the radio. <laughs> That's what they're playing a lot now. Yeah. Like it goes from my, my brother and sister are much older than me. So it was kind of like the last 10 years was mostly 80s music, which was their generation. And now it's, they're coming towards the 90s. So that's what I listen to right. a lot of, or right. find myself listening to. Uh, do you find yourself going to a lot of live shows or when you're out on town, do you actually, do you see other performances beyond the performances that you're involved in? Or is it, I'm too busy and I, I don't like doing that anymore? I hardly ever go to the opera. Um, I say you have a pretty good excuse. Though. <laughs> no, no, I know, but like I, I just I find it really hard to be an audience member because I just I'm so drawn to the stage that I want to be on it. Um, in terms of uh, more popular music, like I'll go see bands. I've been to, I've been to Lollapalooza a couple times. I've been to um, what's the big festival in Palm Springs? Palm Springs, uh, Coachella. Coachella, yeah, and Coachella a couple times. Yeah, uh, I've been to a few you know, big stadium shows. I mean, in the end of the day, when you make music for a living, you don't, I guess, necessarily feel the need to find the enjoyment from watching others, I guess. Even though I love music. But it's, yeah, it's it's something I haven't quite wrapped my head in as how to enjoy a performance that I'm not in. <laughs> you know, that's interesting because I'll watch anything. Clearly, I'm not ever up on the stage. Yeah. Uh, but I, I often wonder how many other artists and musicians that are touring and traveling the world actually leave their house when they're done touring to go see other bands or is it completely or are they just too focused on listening to what the sound guy is doing and saying oh that drummer's not somebody's missing their part or yada 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 and granted you know majority of what i listen to and what i see is generally rock i you know i, I maybe some hip-hop thrown in in there but um you know i've seen plenty of large musicals but the opera it was really nice to have this opportunity to speak with you and to, to actually go through this because, honestly, I don't think I ever would have just to, tried to find someone that was an opera singer no, sure. to be on the Traveling Entertainer. So the fact that you and I 
ended up meeting and going through this was really a lot of fun for me. Uh, I'm sure I've learned more than I ever would have. Uh, and I kind of, um, it was just a lot of fun. I mean, that's the best way I can put it is to have this experience of knowing nothing about it and being very scared of opera. And, and to the point where I think it's, you know, in my early 20s, I decided I'd never be at an opera in my entire life, right? And then to go through this and be like, oh, it's actually quite fascinating. Uh, it's been a fun couple of days for me. So I appreciate that. It's also, you know, it's interesting. What I find interesting is take someone like you who goes to a lot of live shows, right? But the thing with, you know, a rock show is the audience is almost as much a part of the show as the band is, right? Like it's yep. more interactive. You know, you're, you're dancing, you're, you're, moving, you're moving to the music. Like it's an all-encompassing type of thing. Whereas going to like a classical music concert or going to straight theater, like you're observing and feeling, but you're almost like in a, a tight jacket as an audience member. I'm, yeah, I agree. And, you know, there's a certain, there's a, a couple of parts in the production where it's very, I mean, either someone is singing their ass off or even more is there's those, those dead periods where I wouldn't call them dead. It's like they're building suspense. And as an audience member in the opera, you are part of that production because you have to be quiet. At a rock show, you can be like, hey, Fred, go get me another beer. Yeah, exactly. You know, like, so, you know, it's, and it's loud enough that you can talk and no one can really, yeah. you know, and maybe someone next to you is going to be like, hey, shut the hell up. I'm trying to right. watch this performance. But in an opera, you are part of it because if you make noise during this, people are going to notice. Oh, totally. Right? I mean, and have, has that ever been a thing where you've been in a production and someone is, you've, you've heard someone making noise or being disruptive or have you ever seen well, someone? Well, the worst is the cell phones and they always go off in the silences, right? right? Like the amount of cell phones ringing at like the most tension-filled moment of an opera <laughs> is like ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, that would be so frustrating as an actor. And I mean, they do a pretty good job at the beginning of the show of making sure everyone's been told. Yes, culture's better now, but like especially when cell phones were just kind of coming out and people didn't really know how to quite use them or even just turn them off. Like, yeah, it's... You hear my, I'm, I'm, I bet you now in a calendar year I'll hear a cell phone once or twice, whereas back in the day, like <laughs> once a week. Wow, that's way too much. You know what I do notice too is there's a lot of rock concerts that I go to that I'm not a fan. I'm not one of those guys that when I'm at a show, I'm not taking pictures, I'm not taking videos. Uh, you will not see one person in the opera with maybe in the intermission, they'll take a picture of the stage, but yeah. I don't recall seeing one person during the performance raise their camera to take a picture. I mean, that seems to be a much more respectful audience than going to a rock show because it's gotten to the point nowadays where I, I remember seeing um, uh, the Raconteers came and played in Paris, and that's Jack White's band, right? Mm -hmm. He's a big, kind of a big deal. But it was the first concert that I went to where they actually physically had a sock that you put your phone in with a magnet at the end that they could only demagnetize. Really? Yeah. So, and they're, and you know, I, I liked it because when you go to a concert, especially at a place like La Olympia, that's a really beautiful venue. I mean, a lot of top acts end up there, but you do just see a sea of hands in front of you. And I'm not the tallest guy to begin with. So when you got some Yahoo that's slightly taller than you and holding a camera up to take his best picture or do a video of it so he can post it on YouTube, it's really annoying. So it's refreshing to go to a performance where, Nobody's got their cell phones out. Uh, you know, you're not being distracted by it. And in a weird way, opera kind of figured that one out a long time ago. Yeah. Well, it's also, it's how can you enjoy something if you're watching it through a four inch screen, right? I mean, the whole point of going to the theater is to be immersed in the culture of it, right? Whether right. it's a rock concert, whether it's um, a Tennessee Williams play, whatever it happens to be, right? The, the point is to be kind of brought into this world and to not think of anything for the, the time that you're there. 
No, I hear you. I hear you. But I think it's, 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 I probably already knew that if I already, if someone were to ask me without ever going to the opera, do you think that there's going to be a disruptive audience or there's going to be cameras on and people are going to be taking pictures or that cell phones might be going off? I'm pretty sure I already knew the answer to it. Right. Right. Uh, that makes sense. But it was, it, it is refreshing. It was noticeable. Because I, yeah, I, well, I mean, look, I've been to a lot of musicals too, that whether it's been in Seattle or London or Paris, um, you know, whatever on stage biz, big musical, Wicked, uh, you know, Lion King, blah, 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 those types of yeah. theatrical performances, and you still get Yahoo's taking picture in the audience. Right. Um, even though they tell you, and they're probably going to have somebody come down, an usher will come by and be like, please stop that right now. Yeah, yeah. But in the opera, I just don't see, I don't, I, I don't think that's something that exists. Yeah, it's, I'm not sure if it happened to the show you came to or the one one before, but I was doing my scene, which is quite dramatic and kind of, I have to have like a laser like focus and the way I move my body and where, where I'm directing my voice and my eyes. And someone took a photo way up in the, like the, th- the third balcony and you see it like, cause you see that flash, right? And it immediately it took my, my eye went there, right? Right. And it's just, it is infuriating. Okay, let's go back to uh, the rest of the year. So you have, you've got Oslo, you've got New York, then you have Hong Kong. After that, are you somewhere else? Yeah, then I go to Cincinnati for Rusalka, which is a Czech opera, which I've done a lot. And it's one of my favorite roles. So that's. So it seems like, you know, what I'm getting is with the amount of time you've been in the industry, you're doing a lot of the same roles multiple times over the years. That's fair to say. Yeah, it's always a balance between doing stuff that you've done before and then adding new roles in and then planning out how you're going to learn the new stuff because, you know, ideally you want to have a pretty full schedule. So if I'm here in Paris, what's my next show? When do I start learning that? When am I going to find find time to do it? Because as, as I told you in the first podcast, like the discipline is so important in this, but no one's looking over your shoulder, you know? So, I mean, this season's pretty good because between now and... And at the end of the summer, I have two roles I have to learn, but they're quite sizable. So it's figuring out when to do that. And then beginning, see the, the opera season goes from uh, autumn to autumn. So I'm going to say next season, but really next year. I'm doing a real major massive role for the first time. And already now I'm thinking I got to start working on it. And that's 10 months away. You know, because I need that much time to get it into my voice, to get the the lyrics into my, into my head, memorize the music. I mean, it's a huge job, right? Going to go on some random questions here. Uh, first of all, just by you sitting in front of me, I can tell that you're a Raptors fan. Yes. Uh, <laughs> how did that come about? Uh, and for the record, I know nothing about sports. Absolutely really? nothing about it. Okay. I just know, you know, like what teams are from certain cities. Yeah, but yeah. I would have no idea who plays for the Raptors. Yeah, yeah. Well, we grew up in, I mean, I grew up in Toronto, so obviously I just became a Raptors fan. Plus, they became a franchise when I was probably 13 or 14, so quite formative years, and kind of got onto it. I mean, they've been a pretty dismal franchise for most of those 25 years, but, I mean, they won the championship this year, so got to show off the pride. Now, also on your right hand, you have four sizable rings, larger than the average rings that most people wear. I have to ask, what do these mean? So it's it's four generations of my family. Okay. So we can't. So we're moving on my right hand from index finger to pinky. So on my index finger, I have my great grandfather's ring, which was actually his ring. So it's from Bulgaria from probably the mid to late 19th century. And on my middle finger, I have uh, a ring that my father had made by a jeweler friend of his. And my dad had the same 
uh, ring made for himself. And then on my fourth finger, I have my school ring from high school, which is that choir school I went to, which is pretty much why I'm a musician. And then the last ring, which is actually the first ring I got, was my grandmother's ring. Ah, okay. Well, you should not have any children unless they're comfortable wearing something on their thumb. On thumb, yes, because yeah, yeah. you're fifth. <laughs> well, I guess it could go down several generations, <laughs> yeah, but yeah. you know, you've only got six or seven more generations. Exactly. Best so case, full. and then maybe you go on to toes. I don't know. You know, Who knows? piercings happen. What are kids going to be doing those days? <laughs> I, I don't. I, I don't know. I don't want to know. Yeah, and leave my children out of it. Exactly. Okay. Well, Mr. Pomakov, thank you very much for being on the Traveling Entertainer podcast. It has been. An absolute pleasure speaking with you. I find your past fascinating. I think the amount of travel you do is ridiculous, also very rewarding. But I I truly do appreciate the fact that you took the time to speak with me, that you were generous enough to provide a concert ticket uh, for the opera, uh, and then to come back and speak with me about this. And I wish you nothing but the best of luck in your future. And hopefully I'll see you five years down the road, two years down the road. Whenever I do see you, I look forward to your performance. Thanks, Mike. It's a pleasure, and it's always it's a true pleasure for me to introduce people to the opera who had no idea what it was. So I encourage all your listeners <laughs> to do the same. Yeah. All right. Well, you have yourself a good night, and you take care. Thanks, man. And we've reached the end of the bonus interview with Mr. Robert Pomakov. A million thanks to Bob for his time. Now, I know I'm going to butcher this, but I think it's really important to tell you where you can find Opera Bob in the 2020 year. His next performance is at the Den Norsk Opera as Gremin in Christoph Loy's production of Tchaikovsky's Eugene Onegin. He's going to be in Cincinnati Opera as Vodkin in Rusalka, and then he returns to the Metropolitan Opera to cover the roles of Fiesco in Simone Bocanegra and Timor in Turandot. Concert engagement include Beethoven's Missa Solemnis, with the Calgary Philharmonic under the baton of music director Rune Bergman. If you have any questions or comments, drop us a line at info at travelingentertainer.com. Yes, that does have two L's in traveling. And if you like what you heard, you can subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn Plus Alexa, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and pretty much everywhere podcasts are hosted. Or you can stream it off the website at www.travelingentertainer.com. Again, taking us out is Black Hawk Soliloquy, sang by the booming bass voice that is Robert Pomakov. Thanks again, Bob. I hope you're doing well, and take care, everyone.